What many of you may not know, or you may know, is that the conservative movement and the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards has been working on a new ketubah and a new egalitarian marriage ceremony. Much of that work has been led by Rabbi Pam Barmash and others, and it has now been published and it's been passed. That's been on my mind as I read the parasha this week. So I'd like to share with you a few reflections. When you think about it, much of the Yaakov story here is actually about marriage. Let's remember what its frame is. It is led into by Yaakov's parents, Yitzchak and Rivka, collectively deciding what it is that they wish for for the marriages of their sons. And we are reminded that Rivka's voice in that was very, very strong and their position was mutual. This is important because part of what is reflected on in the history of biblical marriage and Jewish biblical marriage is the fact that typically wives and husbands were actively involved mutually in the marriages of their children. It was not an area where the father alone decided. The dispensation of the children was a realm controlled by both, which is one of the reasons that we see in the Ten Commandments of honoring father and mother, and in the holiness code where that puts the mother first, that one must revere one's mother and one's father, one might ask, why do we include the mother if it's a patriarchal society where one has to revere only the father? And the answer is, in many areas, women did have power. We had to revere both parents in their, the dispensation of child rearing and in the children's marriages. So the frame is that the parents have a mutual understanding of what they want. And Esav grossly misunderstands it by trying, partly maybe through his impetuousness or his desire to please, and then in his second marriage, trying to make up for it. And we feel for Esau that he doesn't really understand what it is that his parents wanted. Yaakov, of course, is deceived in the marriage arrangements. We all know that. And, but before we get to the idea that it's because he was deceived in such a way that he had to marry the elder when he meant to marry the younger, and while that makes for a wonderful plot, in the context of legality, Levon has an argument to make that the custom of the place may well have been to marry the older before the younger, as some of us have discussed before. So if that's the case, I wanna look at another level of what the deception is. What if the deception is not the placing of the requirement of the marriage of Leah before Rachel? What if the deception has to do with money, which is the connection of money and marriage that actually is the one that proceeds throughout the parasha and is really its interconnecting motif. Much of the end of the parasha deals with money explicitly. It's not just that Yaakov wants the money that he's rightfully earned through his magic touch with Lavan's flocks. And the main act of treachery of Lavan is not the substitution of Leah. The main act of, tre of treachery is to fail to provide these wages properly as Yaakov explicitly points out. It's also that the dramatic climax of fleeing and getting caught has to do with the wives' agreement to flee because it's their bridal payment that's been spent by Levon. It's their money, and that's gonna be important. Rachel steals the household gods in revenge, it seems, 
And as the rabbinic commentators point out, maybe it's not so much that she is still a polytheist as it is that it's an act of revenge over Levon's use of her bridal funds. Levon tells Yaakov in the crucial turning point of the money plot that he's learned through divination that Yaakov has special powers with flocks and will bring him wealth. Divination, while problematic, is not idolatry, according to the rabbis. And if the teraphim, these household gods, are his divination tools, as the rabbis suspect they are, then Rachel is performing an act of revenge. Her money has been stolen by Levon, and so she steals his divination tools that led him to the money in the first place, which led him to exploit um, Yaakov in the way he did. If I keep him longer, this will happen. If I keep him longer, this will happen. He, he's running out a money fraud plot using them. So these teraphim, these are tools that made him rich and are being used to keep Yaakov close. So money and acquisition are key here. So how is a woman acquired in marriage? And what is it that we think we know? This is a case where often when we read our text literally, let's say our ketubah text, it is highly offensive. Often when we read the biblical text, I find it offensive. And part of the beautiful thing of being historical is often the more we understand history, the more we understand that people back then were not so different than ourselves. And often we discover the values that are within what they were doing rather than what we assume. Even today, much of fundamentalism is motivated, as I've often pointed out, through a mimetic process. This is the way I saw it done in my grandparents' home. So this is real Judaism, or this is real Catholicism, or this is real Islam, without an historical dimension. What if I don't assume that when I read this literally, it's exactly what I think it is? What if there's a historical dimension that I have to um, reveal? And of course, the name of the conservative movement used to be the positive historical movement. And as you know, I prefer it because it doesn't have the political connotation of conservative and liberal, and it includes the word positive, and it includes the word historical. So what is going on in the Ketubah and what's going on with acquisition? In 2003, Rabbi Ben Zion Bergman, wrote a Tishuvah approved by the CJLS. It was called towards an egalitarian Ketubah. And he writes this, the traditional Ketubah reflected a time when women were especially vulnerable since a marriage could be dissolved at the initiative of the husband with or without her consent. And their economic opportunities were, were limited. The traditional Ketubah therefore does not reflect nor address the needs of present reality. The traditional language of the Ketubah is in some of its phraseology offensive in the way it portrays the wife's role. Indeed, embarrassment at the language and terms of the traditional ketubah are such that the ketubot now on the market, when accompanied by a parallel document in English, well, the English document is never a literal translation, but a paraphrase that often only remotely resembles the original. Rabbi Pam Barmash, who is one of the main architects of the new ketubah and egalitarian ceremony, reminds us that in biblical society historically, there are contradictory elements going on. So let's pay close attention. Usually the man initiated the marriage process and the marriage was in the language of acquisition of the bride by the groom. But she writes, these words should not be misunderstood. 
Through this process, the husband gained the right to marriage, but not ownership of his wife. The wife is not his property in this process of kinyan. Furthermore, the term brit, covenant, is used in Malachi, Yechezkel, and Mishle, and it's a term implying free consent to the agreement and a certain amount of mutuality, although far from complete equality. If you look at ancient Mesopotamian marriage contracts so similar to biblical marriage arrangements and the Ketubah later, there were mutual terms specified. The contract would be, yes, it was often written by parents and so on and so forth, but it was a unique document that reflected the contractual and mutual consent issues between the two families, between husband and wife. In ancient Mesopotamia, a woman could initiate divorce and penalties for divorce and all money matters were therefore negotiated in this document. That said, the key factor was not the language of the document, it was the social standing of the women involved. Women of lower social status often got the short end of the stick in the contract. For example, in some Mesopotamian marriage documents, it's not unusual to say that if the woman initiates the divorce, which she has a right to do, that she will be tied up and thrown in a river. In almost all cases, and she would consent to this because in a way she'd be forced to because she was of lower status. In almost all cases in these documents, we find that women almost always had lower social standing, but the structure itself was meant to be mutual. And in the small number of cases where women were of upper standing and had larger dowries and were involved in situations of marrying men of lower social standing, their marriage document could reflect her rights and the penalty is associated toward him. In the Hasmonean period, we know, as we see it in, uh, in the Talmud, a transition famously made by Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach, where originally the full money payment of the, was put aside. So we have this idea. Isn't this all about a man pays money and acquires a woman? But actually, think about it. Where does the money go? The money does not go to the woman's father. The money goes to the woman herself in the Ketubah. And even in the Hasmonean period, as this was finalized, it was added an extra protection for the woman that in case of the husband's death, which was often more of a concern than the divorce, especially in those times, that the money that he paid plus the money of her dowry would be put in, to quote Al Gore, in a lockbox. Often that lockbox would be held at the her father's home. If the man was unhappy, he said, go home to your father's house. When it says go home to your father's house, it means go get your money, we're divorced. So you can go live there, have your dowry, I don't care, and have the money I paid. So the Ketubah was reflecting a form of protection for the woman, but Shimon ben Shatach actually instituted that there would be a lien on the husband's estate in case that money had disappeared somehow, and also to prevent husbands from impetuously sending their wives back to their father-in-law's home. An additional protection where woman actually had a lien on, the, on the, her husband's estate. Women also brought a dowry, though poor women didn't have to. And in that case, the suitor would provide the woman's side of the price or a charity fund would to be added to the bride price, price and set aside for her. And the dowry could also include household items. 
In our story, that's the strange insertion of the maidservants that are in, that go with Rachel and Leah, which the rabbis spend a lot of time on. Why is that just like stuck in here? Because it's part of the dowry. And of course, we saw that with uh, Eliezer and Rivka um, in previous weeks, where the amount of money that, and the jewelry that he gives, that goes to the bride. Not, it went to Rivka. It didn't go to Levant. So in the Yaakov story, the husband has to pay a bride price, and it is set aside for the bride. So the money that Yaakov is earning is for Rivka and Leah. It's not for Levan. So now if you read the whole story, it's not about Yaakov being deceived by Levan in many ways. It's actually Rachel and Leah being defrauded of the money that Yaakov has earned that he should be getting with them. It's their money that should be going with them. And that's why she brings it up in the part that I showed you, where she said, how dare he? He's, he has spent and he's dealt recklessly with what should have been in our lockbox, the money that Yaakov has earned and rightfully belongs to us. That was not the 20 years, it was the 14 years. The 14 years of work should have gone to them and then the extra seven to an arrangement between Levan and Yaakov. So there are a few changes in the new Ketubah. I'm only gonna mention a couple. We'll the name of where it says if she's a maiden or she's a batulta or if she's a divorcee, if she's a convert, all of that's taken out. And they just use the word kala, the word bride, which is perfectly appropriate legally. If you're not going by mimetically, well, this is the ketubah my grandparents had. And if you have a different ketubah, it must be on kosher. Rather than saying these are actual legal documents that were written up originally and could change. So to call her the bride, it's pretty clear who the party of the first part is being specified. And it's totally kosher. Some people have complained that in the new ketubah, that it says that if you're going to keep the zuzim, then you say 200 comes from the bride and 200 comes from the groom. Because the bride can provide her side of her own dowry that she gets to keep. And in that case, people say, well, doesn't that cancel it out? Then no purchase has taken place. He hasn't bought her because she put in the same amount of money that he did. But as we understand, and we said earlier, it's actually not a process of acquisition. The bride actually gets the money that is pay paid. And, and it, so it's not like her father sold her. And in fact, it could, so in that sense, it's not a matter of he pays her money because bought from the dad. In addition, if we just look back at the famous Mishnah on it, Shammai said the acquisition should take place very cheaply. It could take place just by a dinar. And the reason being that it doesn't reflect her value. She is not the property that we value in the purchase. The purchase by a cheap dinar is to show that this is a ritual act an act that changes the status of the couple, but it is not anything like purchase. After all, if she were an object being bought, the money would be presented to a third party, not her. And it's crucial to note as well that the woman must consent to the legal action. Again, that's not in the case of an object being purchased. So for Masecha Kedushin, if the man declares, be betrothed to me with this selah, a coin worth two shekels of silver. And when she took it out of his hand, she threw it into the ocean or a river, then she is not betrothed. If he says, be betrothed to me with a mana, that's a hundred zuzim or 50 shekels of silver. And she says to him, you know what? Give it to somebody else. She is not betrothed. If she said to him, this person should accept it on my behalf, then she is betrothed. So she can have an agent get it. 
If he's counting out the coins and dropping them in her hand one by one, she has the option to change her mind until he is finished. So consent is a part of the transaction and she can refuse. Can she initiate? A woman can initiate a marriage. That's what I was always taught in Judaism. Absolutely she can. At first it looks like she cannot because it says, the man says, you and I are now betrothed and they're not betrothed, but she can actually do so through an agent. So Rabbi Zerah by Marmel raised an objection and he said, the document of marriage is not the same as a document of sale. In the document of sale, the seller who writes, my field is sold to you, whereas here in the case of marriage, the husband writes, your daughter is consecrated to me. It's a completely different action. This is yet another piece of evidence that the process of marriage is not an act of sale. If a marriage were either the wife-to-be or her father should write the document saying that she is betrothed. When one is selling something, they write the document. In this case, the husband writes the document. So where does that leave us at the end of the parasha? It leaves us in a historical place. What is demeaning to the woman in ancient bills of sale was the fact that they had such, they were so deprived of social status. It's not the ceremony. It's not the words of the ceremony. It's not the legal conditions that is demeaning them, but rather it's that the fact that the society makes them suffer from such low social status, that it affects their options. And in many ways, marriage was meant to protect them as we've seen in the text. So therefore in a time Rabbi Barmash writes and the CJLS affirms when the social status of women is dramatically more equal and should be, there's no halachic problem with making the language of the ketubah and of the ceremony itself match the fact of that equality because the context was always in a sense, a mutual interaction, a covenant an egalitarian. When Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in, in Israel writes that this is a Shanda because you, I mean, you can't even have the woman say you're consecrated to me that would completely annul it. The sources are strange because actually the wife can contribute to the man. And the wife is actually allowed by Jewish law to even pay for the ring, which I didn't know. So as we get to the end of the parasha, it's preceded by Rivka and Yitzchak and a mutual concern about marriage. And the stories of marriage and money of the parasha share that concern for mutuality. Brides are not acquired through purchase because the money goes to them. And so the deception of by Levan is not one that only affects Yaakov, but it's just as much affecting Rachel and Leah. It is their agreement that they want to leave and go forth, not as a sign of submission, but as a sign of agency. They have been robbed and they deserve to get their money. May the egalitarian ketubot and marriage ceremonies approved by the CJLS become yet another reason for us to be considered modifiers of tradition that keeps to the original law. And may they show its preservation of tradition in affirming and recovering the mutuality already built into the ceremony now brought into its fullness because of the equal status of women in our society. Can you hear that song?